Beatles words very much of their time. I will present as much context for their statements as I can, but there will be language and views expressed that may not fit with modern sensitivities. But this is 1969. Until they invent the time machine, these words remain unchangeable. Good morning. Twenty-nine. Twenty-nine. Three, two, one. Can't operate under these conditions, boy. But you know, we're coming out. It's like, it's like that. We're like, we're striking. That's what it is. It's like a strike. And that's what we're going through now, really. Is that we've got to readjust to each other. You know, I've gone for so many songs. But I've got, like, my quota of tunes for the next ten years or albums. I won't lie, I'm not too good. <laughs> the winter of discontent with the Beatles. Hello, and welcome to Winter of Discontent the podcast that takes a deep dive into the recordings of the Beatles sessions for the Get Back Project. My name is Nick. Join me now as we embark on this epic journey together. Episode 10 Another podcast recommendation. It's called Another Kind of Mind and it deals specifically with the John and Paul dynamic. In fact, in a series of episodes entitled If I Ran Away From You, they study the curious, passive-aggressive game of cat and mouse which is played out in the Beatles' final months. Did John intend for the Beatles to split? Really? Take a listen and see what you think. I hope you enjoyed episode 9. It was a little bit of a diversion on our journey, but it's well worth it, I think. Hopefully, it gives you an insight into Ringo's mindset during these sessions. As ever, the episodes are chronological, so if you want to follow the story in sequence, please start with episode 1. Otherwise, here is a recap of the end of season 1, episode 8. We're now in the final hours of the first day of rehearsal, January 2nd, 1969. George runs through All Things Must Pass for his bandmates. What follows is a more or less solo performance with some typical off-key accompaniment from John. It's another intellectual lyric from George, but let's not forget the first song he demoed today, Let It Down, was about something far more carnal, which is a conflict George would wrestle with for the rest of his life. As the tape cuts off, we don't know if any serious attempt at learning the song was undertaken by the band. All we know is that when audio resumes, Paul is demoing his song on our way home, later to be known as Two of Us. The approach the Beatles take is to immediately try and follow Paul as he runs through the song. Not to listen to it at all first. Paul is the centre of attention and in control of every nuance. He vocalises the drum parts, he sings guitar parts, he calls out chord changes and suggests harmony notes. This approach isn't particularly methodical for a song such as this, which has a number of changes in time signature. So for a while, the structure of the song seems to elude everyone. It's further complicated by Paul suggesting doing a double speed mid-late the second time round. Eventually, everyone gets their head around the song, and Paul switches to bass, which, ironically, he doesn't have any ideas for. In fact, he predicts the final arrangement by saying he can't actually imagine bass in it. 
Overall, this run-through has been more productive and much more good-natured than the rehearsals for I've Got a Feeling and Don't Let Me Down. One gets the feeling the Beatles are enjoying this up-tempo tune with its upbeat melody. The tape runs out and the last of the day's recordings comes to an end. So that night, they all returned home. Paul back to Linda and Heather, Ringo back to Maureen, Zach and Jason, George back to the tension at home with Charlotte and Patty, most likely. John and Yoko, as they were together, could have gone for dinner on their way back to Kenwood. Top of the Pops was on, presented by the now disgraced Radio 1 DJ Stuart Henry. Undoubtedly, some of the Beatles would have checked that out. Appearing tonight were The Scaffold featuring Paul's brother Michael, Marmalade singing their version of Obladee Oblada, Love Sculpture featuring Dave Edmonds with the instrumental Sabre Dance, The Foundations with Build Me Up Buttercup, Dusty Springfield performing Son of a Preacher Man, and a few acts having their last run in the chart, Herman's Hermits and Manfred Mann. The audience was also filmed dancing along to Judy Clay and William Bell singing Private Number. Later that evening, BBC Two was showing a Horizon documentary on obesity, or fatness as it was uncharitably called at the time. It suggests that one woman in 16 is more than 50% overweight and discussed the newly discovered health issues that this can cause. After that, the couples might have cuddled up to tonight's comedy presentation starring real-life married couple Paul Apprentice and Richard Benjamin entitled He and She. It was considered pioneering for portraying Prentice's character as a working wife, so perhaps Yoko was keen to watch this. Although she may not have been quite so taken with tonight's episode, Along Came Kim, which is about a visit from the couple's adopted Korean son, with hilarious stereotypes. And then we should imagine it was an earlier night than usual, as they had to be up and ready for tomorrow's sessions, scheduled for around 10. Maybe Paul and Linda had an earlier night. After all, they were in the midst of making daughter Mary at this time. And so the Beatles awoke on January 3rd, 1969 to another dry but chilly morning. In the news, Konkordsky, the Soviet Union's surprisingly similar rival to the Anglo-French Concorde, made its maiden flight. The story of the dog that may have killed a baby. First woman Home Secretary Barbara Castle stands firm over strike laws a reference to a government white paper proposing an act to reduce the power of the UK trade unions. And Robert Maxwell loses his fight over the ownership of the News of the World tabloid to Rupert Murdoch. Let's go back now to Soundstage 3 Twickenham Film Studios and join Paul and Ringo at the piano. Editorial note. I usually do a song analysis for each new song as it's performed. I won't be doing this for this flurry of new songs that Paul brings to this session. If I do that, we won't progress past the first 10 minutes of audio. So, for songs that have a later band rehearsal, I'll wait until that happens before diving in. The tape begins. Paul and Ringo are sitting at the piano. Running. Paul is running through the piano part for The Long and Winding Road. That's Ringo plonking along off-key on the high notes. <laughs> that sounds a bit to me like Paul's just told Ringo to just clap.
These performances were filmed by the crew and form part of the opening sequence for the film Let It Be. After testing a few chords, Paul launches into a performance of Oh Darling. The piano was set up for yesterday's rehearsal, but nobody used it. That was 28 take one time, 22.11 on second day of shooting. It's 10.40, John and George are late. Possibly because Paul had been late yesterday and they didn't feel the need to rush. Paul is saying, then to lighten the mood. He starts running through Maxwell's silver hammer. Paul finds a dramatic chord and improvises. claps along. PA is switched on, causing shrill feedback. In the long shot, you can see a speaker behind them. This inspires Paul to whistle, joined briefly by Ringo. He's more enthusiastic about this song than he would become later. Second verse lyrics aren't complete. This is often the case with Paul. Ringo sings his own words to the tune. Michael Lindsay Hogg asks Paul and Ringo if they felt like they were being filmed. This setup was obviously requested by Michael rather than being spontaneous. It's also clear that the audio used in the documentary doesn't match the visuals. None of the last three performances are heard in the Let It Be film. However, an edit of all the performances would be overlaid with the audio that you're about to hear. Twenty-nine take one, sync, second day shooting, five to eleven. for strings. It's an orchestral piece transcribed to piano. This faster section seems to be a different exercise altogether. Mm. 
is playing this piece, Adagio for Strings at a Fair Clip. The organ recital that opens this episode is more like the tempo the Adagio should be played at. The composer Samuel Barber was just 26 when he composed this piece in 1936, virtually the same age as Paul is now. It was the second movement of his string quartet, Opus 11. The quartet was first performed in November 1938. Critically acclaimed at the time and since, full of pathos and cathartic passion, and its most famous and moving use is in the Vietnam War movie, Platoon. At its normal tempo, the melody gives the impression of a hesitant climbing of stairs. How Paul came to know this piece isn't known at present. Interviewers never ask. Paul is thought to have taken piano lessons in 1966, and this may have been one of the study pieces he was given. It's a fairly simple piece at around grade one level. It's not too taxing in terms of two-handed playing. Alternatively, this could be another classical piece transcribed by ear in McCartney's youth as a party piece. That is a tune or a song brought out to entertain relatives at family gatherings. In fact, Paul and George Harrison used to perform a version of J.S. Bach's Bourree in E minor at parties on guitar, and Paul still plays this at concerts as an introduction to Blackbird. That version of a classical piece was learned largely from memory, and much like Paul's rendition of Adagio for Strings, it features a number of errors or simplifications in the transcription. So it's possible that this was just something Paul always pulled out when asked to play something, and not a serious attempt to learn some classical piano. improvising something before returning to the Adagio. In the breaks, Paul treats us to a rendition of the T for Two Chacha. This seems a bit forced for the cameras. 
worldwide hit in 1958 for the Tommy Dorsey Orchestra, the T for Two Cha-Cha cannot have escaped Paul and Ringo's attention as teenagers. Either the Dorsey Orchestra's recording or the radio performances by British band leaders Ted Heath and Joe Loss would undoubtedly have been picked up in their respective homes. The tune is a rearrangement of the Irving Caesar Vincent Newman song T for Two, written for the 1924 musical No No Nanette. Dorsey himself had actually died in 1956. The orchestra carried on in his name, led by Warren Covington. Perhaps Paul is inspired by the Dorsey record, but in terms of meter and tempo, his performance is closer to the version the Ted Heath Orchestra recorded. That version follows the ragtime style set by jazz pianist Art Tatum in 1933. Now, while it could be argued that Paul is mimicking Tatum here, we are not really comparing apples with apples. Tatum was a brilliant virtuoso. Paul has an excellent ear, but he doesn't play at that kind of level. And this is part of the reason why Billy Preston will be recruited later in these sessions. Paul, semi-apologising for not getting the chords right. Well, you know, we are very mad <laughs> Fucking madcap is right. <laughs> Lindsay Hogg calls it madcap and Paul sarcastically points out here, fucking madcap. Another go at T for two, only faster. <laughs> Chopsticks, except not really remembering it very well. It reminds me of the British northern comic Les Dawson. We'll start off with side by side, so let's hear you sing. You ready? Raise the roof. It won't tell us doing the gutterings on the inside. <laughs> It sounds like an asthma clinic. <laughs> Try it again, you haven't paid, go on. That's it. <laughs> oh, come on, come on. I think is an improvisation. 
As Paul is repeating a two-note phrase, Ringo is reminded of the theme to Torchy the Battery Boy, a 1960 Cherry Anderson puppet show. Paul joins in. This piano part, although fairly generic, is very, very close to Death Cab for Cutie, the song the Bonzo Dog Band performed in the Magical Mystery Tour film. Ringo is playing the upper register of the piano in a style taught to him by Roy Young during downtime between marathon sessions in Hamburg, Germany in early 1962. This turns into a rendition of Jerry Lee Lewis's Whole Lot of Shaking. The song Whole Lot of Shaking was either written by Dave Curley Williams or James Fay Roy Hall. The first recorded version was by Mabel Louise Smith, an R&B singer performing as Big Maybell. It's Lewis's rockabilly version that Paul is thinking of here, even mimicking the killer's vocal style. Another piano improvisation. tape is turned back on, Paul is outlining this recognisable tune. At this point, just one of many he's tried today. That's an authentic 1969 era GPO telephone ringing in the background. This would be how Dennis O'Dell might communicate with the film crew from the offices, or how the Beatles might communicate with the Apple offices. His presence here just highlights that this is a place of work with staff and management, a whole organisation in fact. Ringo is tapping along gently. I think a long ring would indicate an internal call. Paul hasn't worked out the intro riff for this song yet, or much else. apologises saying he fell back asleep. Paul comments that John is late too. George referring to the large manufacturer's logo on the side of the piano asks Mr. Bluthner McCartney to sing something. Okay, we can cut cameras now. I think we both cut cameras now. Michael Lindsay Hogg feels he has all he needs. 
He certainly edits together quite a lot of this morning's footage alongside the shots of Kevin and Mel from yesterday. I briefly discussed Michael Lindsay Hogg in episode 2. Let's dig a little bit deeper. He was born in New York in 1940, the same year as John and Ringo, to actress Geraldine Fitzgerald, and until his teenage years he believed his father to be Sir Edward Lindsay Hogg. However, rumours amongst family friends eventually led his mother to divulge that his father may in fact have been a pre-citizen Kane Orson Wells. It has never been proven. A DNA test in recent years was inconclusive, but he remains convinced that that is the case. Others disagree, stating that Fitzgerald and Wells were not even in the same country at the time that she became pregnant. Although starting out as an actor, in terms of his directorial career, he first came to prominence as director for the groundbreaking pop TV show Ready Steady Go. Taking over the helm in 1965, although the show itself had been running since 1963. Under his influence, the show began to feature largely live performances, using cameramen more used to outside broadcasting, Michael feeling that they would be more attuned to capturing the spontaneity of live musicians. Watch the clip of The Who performing Anyway, Anyhow, Anywhere to get the idea of how he used the visuals to enhance the music, Similarly, the Rolling Stones performance of Paint It Black, using dramatic lighting and distorting zoom lenses, fast cut to the music. Lindsay Hogg was a hot property by 1966. This led him to direct both video and film performances of Rain and Paperback Writer with the Beatles, as well as clips for the Rolling Stones, such as She's a Rainbow, 2000 Light Years from Home, Child of the Moon and Jumping Jack Flash. And then again, for the Beatles, he directed promotional clips at Twickenham on this very stage for Hey Jude and Revolution. This led him to work with the Stones yet again directing their TV special, The Rolling Stones Rock and Roll Circus, which sat unreleased for nearly 30 years. Despite this, the roots of the Let It Be Get Back project can be traced to this TV special. As we know, John and Yoko performed at the show with an all-star band actually put together to back up Stevie Winwood. In addition to Michael, director of photography Tony Richmond also moved to the Beatles project along with Glyn Johns, who we discussed in episode 4. And even less well-known crew members like focus puller Les Parrott were hastily assembled when Paul McCartney made the call. With such an excellent CV, it would have seemed that Michael Lindsay Hogg was the perfect choice for creatively capturing a Beatles live show. His artistic decisions this morning aren't wrong so far in establishing what Paul has asked for, the concept of building something from nothing, or as Paul likes to refer to it, Picasso paints. One could argue, however, that by orchestrating the two main opening shots of the movie, one of the road managers pretending to set up and the second of Paul and Ringo playing sombre music at the start of the film, he's already drifted away from the idea that this is a documentary and he's set the mood for the entire film that follows. George's cough is still there.
Should be able to give you a wink when you feel it's not coming on. <laughs> I'm just knew I'd never, you know, I knew I wouldn't sort of move in all that. Paul, eating the apple placed prominently on his piano as a subtle promotional tool, isn't too satisfied with his performance. So you really just sort of go, and you would have said, okay, yeah. No, no, that was fine. No. That was nice. You know what I mean? I just sort of knew in that atmosphere I wasn't seeing anything or doing anything. Say that again. His concern is he hasn't played anything good enough or visually interesting enough for them to use. Yeah. <laughs> That's, uh, you know, well, Jack. See, what we did is, like, what we're doing a lot of it, like, we had, like, a two-shot, not seeing your fingers. We could lay any of the tracks over. A two-shot, meaning a shot of both Paul and Ringo. Yeah. Anything pretty. You see, we might need a bit of mood in the middle of all the rock and roll playing. Oh, yeah, <laughs> Yeah. Something to slow the pace of exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Michael thinks the somber music might be a good contrast to all the fast rock and roll that he hopes the Beatles will be performing. Ringo jokes, also feeling this sequence was less than exciting. <laughs> <laughs> You've got three more slow ones. That's Paul talking with a mouth full of apple, and he's saying he's got three more slow songs. Good this month. George discovers a copy of the Beatles book for January. We'll take a look at that next time. And that's it. Thanks for listening. Let me know what you think on our Facebook page and our Instagram, all titled Winter of Discontent Pod. Please subscribe to the podcast and leave a review. It really helps other people find us. You can also email on winterofdiscontentpod at gmail.com. Thanks again and goodbye for now.